0: Matthew chapter 23, and we'll start in verse 1. We did the first 12 verses last week, uh, so we'll pick up our teaching in verse 13. But we'll go ahead and read uh, the entire chapter just for the sake of background and context. Matthew 23 verse 1 says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your Father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is, Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'because you devour widows' houses, "'and for a pretense you make long prayers, "'therefore you will receive greater condemnation. "'Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and you hypocrites, "'because you travel around on sea and land "'to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, "'you make him twice as much a son of hell "'as you yourselves. "'Woe to you, blind guides, who say, "'Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, "'but whoever swears by the gold of the temple "'is obligated, you fools and blind men.' Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Uh, swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. "...so that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of, of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate." For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you have given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, help us to be on guard against, Lord, the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. Lord, knowing that what is being described in this passage, Lord, is not something that is true just of this one generation or of this one Uh, Lord, group of people, but that these temptations are common to men, and that, Lord, even in our own day, we might fall into this trap, Lord, into this snare of deceitfulness, Lord, and we pray that you would guard us and keep us from that. So, Lord, may we not be uh, false in our profession, Lord, pretentious uh, in our practice of righteousness, Lord, desiring to be seen by men, but on the inside being filled with uh, hypocrisy and lawlessness, Lord, filled with death. Father, we want our outward and inward man to be united, Lord, for us to have true love for you and for our neighbor in the heart that manifests itself outwardly in our deeds, Lord, that are seen by others, so that we're not hypocrites, uh, but rather are sincere and true in our love for you. Lord, we know that so long as we maintain and, and the flesh, Lord, as it is with us wherever we go, Lord, that this uh, temptation to hypocrisy will always be present with us. And Lord, we do admit and confess that, Lord, there are many times and many ways in which we do act like hypocrites. And so, Father, we pray that you would forgive us and that you would purge us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and that, Lord, you would have your perfect work within us and conform us, Lord, into the image of Christ. So, Lord, help us and teach us from your word tonight. And we pray that, Lord, you might build us up in our faith. And we thank you for your word and for our gathering together. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, in this chapter, the whole chapter is dedicated to exposing the scribes and Pharisees who were the principal or chief opponents of Jesus during his earthly ministry and also the false teachers or false prophets of the day. Though they had a reputation among the people as being uh, wise men, scribes, Uh, As being scholars, as being righteous men, Uh, yet Jesus is exposing them for all of the sin that they truly possess and what they truly are. Uh, Because the entirety of his ministry, they are always lurking about, uh, causing problems, uh, constantly being a thorn in his side, uh, and they do not believe in him. So they claim to love God and they claim to be strict adherents to Moses and the prophets. And yet, the one that Moses and the prophets testified of and told them to believe in when he came to the earth, uh, they are the ones who were his enemies and the ones who persecuted him. So, they are not standing in line with Moses and the prophets, but rather, they are like their fathers who killed, or they didn't kill Moses, but they killed the prophets, and they hated Moses, right? They persecuted him, and they would have killed Moses if God wouldn't have intervened. This is the line in which they are standing, and so He is describing what they are like, and this is, again, for our benefit, so that we don't behave like this, because as we were, again, mentioning in our prayer, there is within us the flesh, right? We all still possess this part of us that is still controlled by sin, right, that wants to dominate us, that wants to have its way within us to influence us in the way that we live, and one of the deeds of the flesh is hypocrisy. And that is what the scribes and Pharisees, this is what they were experts at practicing. They were hypocrites, and that's why Jesus calls them blind men and hypocrites, right, over and over again throughout this. And He's describing the kinds of sins that they are committing. And these are sins that are common to religious people. These are religious sins or uh, whitewashed sins, respectable sins, right, one might say, right? They're not like the, the one out uh, who is on drugs all the time, right. staggering around as a drunkard through the streets, doing these kinds of things, right? They are very respectable, uh, respectful in the estimation of the people. And the people hold them in this way, but their sins are of a more devious sort, right? Much more deception in what they're doing and what they're practicing, and so we must be on guard against this type of behavior, this type of sin and deceit, and make sure that it does not uh, creep into our heart and that we're not overcome by the deceitfulness of sin, okay? So we finished last time in verse 12, and we'll pick up in verse 13. And 13 through pretty much the end of the chapter is, are these woes that Jesus gives to them, right? Right? And these are him pronouncing judgment upon them. He's pronouncing judgment upon them. And this is, again, after three years of opposition, right? He has patiently taught them over the course of his ministry. Not that he hasn't had his skirmishes with them. He's had that from the very beginning. Right, but he has taught them. He's even gone into some of their homes and had meals with them to teach them and confronted what, what he sees there. But here at the end of his life, right, and we are in the last days of his life, he will give his final pronouncement against these people and against the city of Jerusalem in anticipation of what will happen after his death and resurrection and ascension when the city is completely, the judgment of God comes upon them, right? And this is what Jesus is pronouncing upon them here at the end of his life. So let's pick up in verse 13. And we'll take these one at a time. It says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. "...for you do not enter yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in." Here, they shut the kingdom of heaven from people. The chief duty of the scribes and Pharisees, right, they are the primary teachers of the word of God, the primary teachers of the law. And what is the word of God given to us for? What is its purpose? But to teach us about eternity, the life to come, to prepare us for the day of judgment about the kingdom of God so that we might enter into the kingdom of God and not be cast into the lake of fire that is what the Bible is dealing with principally primarily chiefly not that the Bible of course doesn't have implications in our present life of course it has implications but ultimately it's primarily teaching about the life to come And teaching men to prepare themselves for the day of judgment, to stand before God, how to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and then how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. The focus is on the kingdom of God and the life to come. And they are the primary teachers of the Bible. He said that at the beginning of chapter 23. They have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They are the ones who sit in Moses' chair, not that Moses had a chair, but rather they have this seat in the synagogues where they pick up Moses and the prophets, they read from Moses and the prophets, and then they expound the scriptures to the people. And the primary content of Moses and the prophets is to prepare people for the life to come, for eternity, to enter into the kingdom of God, right? That's what is the purpose of the teaching of the Word of God. That is what they are supposed to do. But instead of ushering people into the kingdom of God, they are shutting them out of the kingdom of God. Their teaching and their ministry is actually prohibiting people from entering into the kingdom of God because their instruction is not consistent with the Word of God and their teaching a false gospel one that does not result in salvation, but one that results in damnation, that will send people to the lake of fire. So they're doing the exact opposite of what they have been commissioned to do. He says, you do not enter yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You yourself aren't going to go to the kingdom of God, meaning you're not going to make it to heaven. You're going to go to hell, and then those who would enter in, who are coming to you, maybe even sincerely coming to you, wanting to know what does the Bible say about this, you're not giving them good instruction, but rather you're prohibiting them from going in too. So you're going to go to hell, and then those who listen to you and who follow you, they're going to go there with you as well. They're blind guides, blind guides leading blind men. And if you follow a blind guide, both of you fall into the pit. This is why in James 3, it says that not many of you should be teachers because the teacher is charged with this duty of preparing people, equipping them for the life to come, for the day of judgment. And they have taken this position and they love the honor and prestige that comes with it of being a teacher of the Bible, but not the responsibility, right? Not faithfully discharging the duty of preparing people for the kingdom of heaven. Instead, they're doing the exact opposite of what the teacher of the word of God should do, Malachi chapter two. This is not something that is uncommon, right. but rather it is a common problem throughout the history of Israel, and it remains so even in our own day as well. Because there are many who have the title pastor or teacher or professor, whatever it is, but they're not uh, they're not preparing people to enter into the kingdom of God, but rather they're shutting them out of it. Malachi chapter 2, we'll pick up in uh, verse 4. It says, Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, and so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also... Made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Here, the contrast is between the Levi, the covenant with Levi, which is the tribe of Levi being the primary teachers of the Bible throughout the Old Testament time, especially from the time of Moses until the time of the coming of Christ. And with those faithful teachers from the tribe of Levi, right, we think back to the establishment of that with Moses and Aaron. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. Was Moses a faithful teacher of the Bible? Yes, Yes, true instruction was in his mouth. That's what he was doing. Right? He had true instruction in his mouth. Unrighteousness was not on his lips. He walked with God in peace and uprightness and turned many back from iniquity. Many, he's teaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's teaching repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What else does it mean to turn people back from iniquity? The lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, right? And men should seek instruction from his mouth. Instruction, true instruction. Instruction into the will of God, into the kingdom of God, into the life to come. This is what He should be teaching them. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. God has commissioned Him, the minister, with this message of reconciliation that He is to faithfully deliver to the people so that they receive true instruction from His mouth and they need and they have everything they need for life and godliness. But what are they doing in the days of Malachi? They've turned aside from the way. They cause people to stumble by the instruction. Stumble by the instruction. The teaching that they're giving, instead of causing them to turn away from sin, is causing them to turn into sin, right? To stumble by their instruction. This is what they are doing. So, the same with the scribes and Pharisees. Yep. They shut the kingdom of heaven from people. They don't enter and they do not allow those who are entering to go in they keep people from it 14 woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites because you devour widows houses and for a pretense you make long prayers therefore you will receive greater condemnation here not only are they corrupted in their teaching but also in their practices in their practices but because again many times it is the minister who is the one leading the congregation or the church or the assembly, the synagogue, whatever, in the local community to help those who are poor and in need. And we see this throughout the Bible, that there was them helping those who were poor, those who were in need, orphans, widows, people like this. Well, they are devouring widows' houses. They're not helping them. They're not caring for them, right? And widows are very vulnerable people. They are those who need someone to help them. They need someone to watch over them, to care for them, to make sure that they're not being exploited and taken advantage of. And that's what they ought to be doing as the chief leaders of the religious life of the people, caring for widows and orphans, the elderly, the poor, those who are vulnerable in this way. But they're not doing that at all. Instead, they're targeting them because they're easy to pick on. They're able to swindle these widows and to devour their houses by promising them spiritual blessings if they give them money. Right? Yeah. This is the way it works. So prosperity gospel is not some new invention. It's been around for a long time. Using religion to exploit people in order to make money. And many times, again, they go for those who are most vulnerable. And here, these widows are very vulnerable, and so they are devouring their households, devouring them, right, taking and stealing from them, literally, under this spiritual guise, using their position, using their title, using the honor and respect that these widows who may be sincere in what they're wanting to do, and yet these men are exploiting them in such a way that they are devouring their houses so that the widows are left with nothing. They're destitute and they have nothing to sustain them while they're here on the earth. Also, he says, for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Right. For a pretense, for a show, they make long prayers. Because many times people equate length of prayers with godliness. Oh, he's very spiritually minded. He's a very godly man. He prayed for two hours. Right? You know, actually everyone's in there going, man, was this guy ever gonna quit praying? That's typically what they're thinking, but they do it in a way that is is making it into a show in order to garner attention, in order to convince the people that they're very spiritual, that they're very righteous, right? This is what they are doing. They do it for a pretense. Okay, a couple of passages. First, Luke 16, 14. Luke 16, 14 Luke 16, 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. This is when he's teaching about you cannot serve God and money. Well, they're scoffing at him, saying, oh, No, this isn't right. This is, this is horrible teaching. Oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But what is motivating them to scoff at this teaching? They themselves are lovers of money. They are the ones who are serving money. Therefore, they're scoffing at Jesus when He's preaching against their idolatry. Well, if you're a lover of money and there's a rich widow and you have the opportunity to take advantage of her, to manipulate her, and get some of that money off of her, that's what they're doing. They're using their position to take advantage of these widows in order to gain money because they love money not people. They love money more than God and they love money more than people. James chapter 1. James 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself Unstained by the world. Pure, undefiled religion in the sight of God. Meaning, this is the manifestation, one of the manifestations of a person who has a truly regenerate heart is that they are going to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and they're going to keep oneself unstained from the world. Meaning, they're going to live a godly life. So, they're going to live godly, and they're going to love others, love their neighbor as themselves. And they're going to love the widows and orphans that are in their midst, especially those who are in distress, who need help. Instead of causing them to be in distress, which is what the scribes and Pharisees are doing by devouring their houses, they're they're going to relieve their distress, right? Because of their love for them. Then also Matthew 6, verse 7. Matthew 6, 7. Matthew 6, 7 says, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So there Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount about meaningless repetition, about lengthy prayers in order to be heard by many words. He's not talking about sincerity, someone who's truly sincere in what they're doing. But there is this tendency, especially when it comes to outward displays, right? And there are... Outward displays of religion that are necessary. For example, I'm teaching the Bible right now. It is outward, right? It is seen, right? You are hearing it, right? It has to be done. There are public prayers that must be a part of our worship, and they should be a part of our worship. But when these things are done outwardly and publicly, the temptation is to do it in such a way as to gain attention from men. And we shouldn't do that. We should just be sincere, and be who we are. Say what needs to be said, right? And then don't drag it out too long, is what Jesus is saying. Don't think that if you just have meaningless repetition in many words, right, that that necessitates spirituality and godliness. right? It doesn't mean that it's not spiritual and godly, but if you're doing it in order to gain attention from men, then you're not doing it for the right reason. Right. You're not praying to God. You're praying to yourself, right? You're doing it for a show in order to gain attention for Yourself. It's not a spiritual act, right? It's an act of selfishness, right? And we shouldn't pray in those ways. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Here, they travel sea and land to make one proselyte. They are very zealous to make converts. Right, to evangelize, to win people to their cause, to their movement, right, to who they are and to what they are doing. So they're traveling around right, trying to do this. They will go across land and sea to meet with someone in order to convert him to their sect, right, to their way of thinking, right, the things that they are doing. Well, when they do this, he becomes twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Those that they are winning to their cause, and this is typically the case, the converts are more zealous than the founders, right? More than the founders because the founders, they're just doing it for their own benefit, right? They're not true believers, but the converts, they become very zealous. This would be like the communists, right? The communists. You've got the shrewd and deceptive communists, and then you've got the stupid communists, okay? Okay. The shrewd, deceptive ones are the leaders, right? Like Obama, Clinton, these, they're communists, okay? So we'll just get that out of the way. They don't really believe in it because look at where they're living. They're living in 1000000000 they they're making billions of dollars. They live in these huge mansions like Bernie Sanders. This guy, we're a fraud. He's got multiple houses, millions of dollars. That's not communism, right? You're not sharing with the little guy. He's not a true believer. He's just using it to benefit himself, <laughs> But what about those who adhere to his principles? These young college students who get brainwashed into this. They're maniacs. They're crazy, right? They're the ones that will storm in and try to burn your house down. They'll, they're the ones that will attack you on the street, right? You see them doing those kinds of things. They are the useful idiots is what Lenin called them. That's not my turn. That's his term, the founder of it. Useful idiots. They are the mob that you can stir up and get to do the bidding of the overlord, of the master, who then benefits financially from these people. Well, this is what happens with their converts. They are more zealous than even the founders, than even the ones that converted them. And they are the ones who go around persecuting the churches, burning down the churches, rounding up the Christians, killing the Christians. They're twice as much a son of hell as the other one, twice as much in two regards— On the one, they're more violent, right, in what they are doing. They're more zealous in what they are doing, in their deception, in what they're doing against the truth. But also, whenever you embrace a false form of religion, a false form of the true religion, you're under a greater deception. If they were pagans before, and now they have become part of this Jewish cult, this Jewish sect, which is a false religion, which one is the greater deception? being in paganism or being here in this group that has a corrupted view of scripture that claims to worship the true God that has many elements that have a component of truth to it but they're still lost in their sins right they're still under a deception they become twice as much a son of hell even more hardened in the deceitfulness of sin even worse than they were when they were pagans right? When they were pagans and worshiping many and multiple deities. This is what they are doing, right? They're not converting people to the true God. They're not making true proselytes. Making a a proselyte is good if he is being converted to the truth, to worship the true and the living God the right way. But they're not doing that. They're converting them to false religion, just as much as Someone who would convert to Islam or Buddhism or any other false religion. This is what they're doing. Yet here, it is more deceptive and devious because it has a closer association with the truth. Right? They're not listening to Muhammad. They're not listening to uh, all of the the gurus and teachers of, of Hinduism and Buddhism. Who are they reading? They're reading Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets through the lens of their rabbis of their false teachers, right, who are corrupting Moses and the prophets, but telling them that, no, this is the true interpretation. It's very deceptive, and it's almost impossible to bring someone out of that. very, very difficult. It takes the miracle of God, which it always takes the miracle of God to do this. But these people in this type of system become so blinded that it's nearly impossible to even talk to them about the things of God. Verse 16, 16 to 22 all go together. Woe to you blind guides who say, "'Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. "'But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. "'You fools and blind men, which is more important? "'The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? "'And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. "'But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. "'You blind men, which is more important, "'the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? "'Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, "'swears both by the altar and everything on it, whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. Here, this is in relation to their oaths, to their oaths, to them uh, making these kinds of false oaths and using loopholes, loopholes in order to get out of doing what they said that they're going to do. But then in other times, holding people to their word, okay? So they have this deceptive, you know, circular way of dealing with oaths so that they themselves can be exempt from what they have sworn to do while at the same time they can hold other people accountable to what they have sworn to do, right? So that they don't have to keep their word but whenever it's expedient for them, other people do. And that's why he calls them you blind guides. Here, this is clear evidence of how spiritually blinded they truly are, how corrupt they are in their understanding, right? Of the two, which is more important, the temple or the gold that is in the temple? Actually, there's three here. Of the three, which is more important, the gold, the temple that sanctifies the gold, or the God who gave the directions to make the temple, right? That's ultimately what's going on here. But they have this corrupt view that if you swear by the temple, that's, that's nothing. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, now you're obligated to keep your word. And Jesus is saying, you're, everything's backwards, right? It's all backwards. Right. Gold is, is what is sanctifying the gold in terms of its religious use, is its association with the temple, right? The gold does not make the temple sacred. The temple makes the gold sacred. So of the two, the temple has the greater Role The greater uh, reverence should be given to the temple as opposed to the gold. Not that Jesus is saying you should swear by the temple or the gold, right? He's simply showing how dumb they are, how this makes no sense at all, the things that you are saying. So swearing by the temple should give more fear, more sobriety, because of the two, the temple is the greater object. It is the temple that is sanctifying the gold, but here, again, gold, if you swear by it, you're obligated. But if you swear by the temple, then you can be set free from it. And likely, the gold is emphasized because they're getting a piece of the pie. Right. right? That's, what, that's what they're doing. If you swear by the gold, well, then they're getting a piece of that, and that's why they, you're obligated to give it. And we know in relation to Korban, this is what they were expecting. They were exacting it upon the people. Mark chapter 7 Mark chapter 7 verses 9 to 13 This oath of korban that people were giving and that they were telling them to do they were exacting in the keeping of this oath. They would not let them out of it once they made it, even though it is a false oath, right? They shouldn't be making this. It's, it's, it's contrary to the commandment of God. Mark 7, 9, he also was saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, "Whatever I have that would help you is korban," that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. So there, the law teaches the honoring of parents, and that a failure to honor parents is can have a Uh, degree of sin accompanying it that is even worthy of death, right? It can rise to that level. Not that a child disobeying the parent should be taken out and executed, but he means it in the sense of adult children or children in their teenage years, right? If they are uh, speaking evil against their parents, striking their parents, right? Which has happened before, young men uh, in their late teenage years, early 20s, will even fight, get into a fight with their fathers. And kill them. Right? And, yeah, and do horrible things to them. Well, if a son does that, okay, that is worthy of execution according to the law of Moses if someone does it. So he's simply saying this to show the severity. The severity of breaking this law and how important it is that we honor our father and mother. And part of honoring father and mother is caring for them when they're old, okay? But they have come up with this exception, right, this loophole by which a son is exempted from caring for his aging parents, and that is Korban, right? If a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Korban that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. You will not allow him to use that money that he has set aside for the benefit of his parents he cannot access that anymore. They hold him to his oath and to his word. Though they themselves are experts at getting out of their word. They will make oaths and then get out of it. Say, well, it was nothing. I just swore by the temple. But now you swore by the gold in the temple, and we're going to hold you to it. Right? And you, We're not even going to allow you to use it for a good purpose of caring for your aging parents because you made this oath. And why are they so exacting on the people? Because if it's given to God, who gets part of it? They do, do, right? It's for their own benefit. That's why they are doing these things. Then verses 18 and 19, another, the the same thing. Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the the, uh, the offering? Again, here, the same thing. The altar sanctifies the gift. Right? If it is some animal, the animal is just a common animal, but if that animal is taken as a sacrifice to the temple, then it becomes sanctified. Meaning, it's been set apart for some religious purpose, not for common use of uh, wool or of milk or of meat that you might use. But it's uncommon, it has a spiritual, a sacred purpose in that it's being used in the worship of God. And it is the altar that sanctifies or makes sacred, set apart the gift. It is not the lamb or the goat that is itself a sacred goat and lamb. And now I brought it to the altar and because I put my sacred goat on the altar, now the altar has all of a sudden become sanctified. No, it's the other way around. Okay, so in terms of the altar or the gift, which one has the higher priority, right? Which one is the greater of the two? The altar is the greater because it sanctifies the gift. But here, they're doing the same thing with this. If you swear by the altar, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gift that is on the altar, now you are obligated. Now you must give it. So he's, again, pointing out to them, this is ridiculous. How can you justify such backwards practices. Everything is upside down with Him. And that's because they are blind guides. Blind guides. Now, what is the true understanding that we ought to have? Well, that's verses 20 to 22. He says, Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him Who sits upon it? Here, he's showing that they are guilty. They are guilty of breaking their oaths because they have made these oaths and used these loopholes in their own mind that excuses them from it and means that they're not guilty, that they've not sinned, they've not borne false witness, they've not failed to keep their word because I only swore by the temple. Or I only swore by the altar, and you are not obligated to do that. It's more just like a a promise that maybe I'll do, maybe I won't. But no, he says, no, this is not the case at all. If you swear by the altar, you are also at the same time swearing by the gift that is on the altar. So under, he says, even under your own corrupt understanding, you are bound to obey. You are bound to keep your word. And more important than that, in verses 21 and 22, swearing by the temple and swearing by heaven is the same as swearing by who? By By the Almighty God. The God who dwells in the temple and the God who has heaven as His throne. You cannot use these lame excuses, these loopholes, to get out of keeping your oath. God sees, God hears your oath, You're swearing by His name, so if you have sworn to do it, then you better keep it. And God does not honor your loopholes. He doesn't approve of them, and He's not going to take that when you stand before God on the day of judgment, and He says, why did you not keep your oath? You swore. He's not going to accept, well, I just swore by the altar, and therefore it's not legitimate, and I don't have to keep it. God's not going to go for that. He's like, what are you talking about? No, that, that does not count. You are obligated, and you are a liar. Sir, and all liars go to the lake of fire. So, we should not do this. We should let our yes be yes, and let our no be no. And if we make an oath, we should be faithful to keep our oath. Deuteronomy 23. This was clearly taught in the law of Moses. So, they were without excuse. But, again, you see what they're doing. How they would say, oh yeah, we believe. We believe the law of Moses. We, we hold to Moses. We agree with Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. But, but this is what it means. This is what it, the interpretation is. Then they have their corrupt interpretation. And that's how they're justifying, saying we are strict followers of Moses and we're not breaking it, while at the same time throwing everything out, right? And doing whatever they please. 23, 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. So, there, when you make the vow, don't delay in paying it. If you've made a vow to God, keep your word, because if you don't, it's a sin, is what he says. And the Lord will require it of you. If you're not going to keep it, he says, just don't make it. No one says you have to make this vow or you have to take this oath. Don't make it if you're not going to keep it. And if you don't make it and you don't keep it, then it's not a sin. But if you make it, then be careful to keep it. But that's not what they're doing. They're finding ways to reject this commandment. Also in Matthew 5, 33 to 37... Matthew five, thirty-three to thirty seven says, Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfil your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no no, anything beyond these is evil. Now again, he is not condemning all vows. There are legitimate times to make vows in order to confirm the solemnity, the seriousness of what is taking place, such as uh, at a wedding, right? It is good for husband and wife to take vows before God and man as a uh, token of the seriousness and gravity of what is taking place there. But in our day-to-day life, right, We should not have to take vows in order to confirm our word, right? Uh, I shouldn't have to say to the children, "Uh, did you take the trash out? I swear by God in heaven that I took the trash out, right? Do we need to do that in our daily life constantly all the time? Uh, Did you get your math done? I swear by the altar of God in Jerusalem that I have done my math. (laughs) We don't need to do that. You should just be able to say, Yes, I did my math, or no, I didn't do my math, and that should be sufficient, right, in whatever we're doing in our day-to-day life. And shouldn't use these kinds of word games in order to manipulate and trick people, bamboozle them, right, into believing me or not believing me or whatever I'm doing. Just be honest and truthful in your words, in the way that you are. They're not doing that. They are using all sorts of clever In their own mind, it's clever. It's not clever before God. It's foolishness before God. But in their own mind, they're very clever in what they're doing. But it's not going to gain them any advantage before God because God does not recognize and accept their lame uh, uses of words and excuses for failing to keep their word. And so we shouldn't be like them either. But rather, we should keep our word and do what it is that we have promised. 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Here, another area that was a common sin for them, a manifestation of what these people were truly like they are focused on the minutia, on the minutia, the finer points of the law, while at the same time neglecting the greater provisions of the law, right? That's what they're doing. They have these gaping holes in their life, in their practice, these giant uh, areas of sin, of deceit, of evil in their life, but because on these other areas... They are doing things to the minutia, right? To the finest detail, very meticulously. Then they convince themselves that they are very righteous before God. And these are those kinds of outward things that people will be preoccupied with. They get focused on these kinds of things and then neglect the weightier provisions of the law. Here, Scripture does make a distinction between weightier provisions And those things that are less weighty, right? That's obviously what he's talking about here. Uh, Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Those are weightier provisions of the law. Tithing, mint, dill, and cumin. These are less weightier provisions of the law. These are the lesser things. Now, he's not saying that we should get rid of all of those or that there isn't a place to talk about and focus on those things, but in proportion, right? In the proper way. If your house is not in order, right? if the foundation is, is cracked and crumbling, does that need to be repaired first, or do you need to repair this uh, uh, paint spot on the wall? Well, the foundation needs to be pre- repaired first. That's the greater issue. That's the bigger thing. The whole house is going to crumble if you don't deal with that. right? That's what they have. The foundation of their house is crumbling. It is sand. It is no good. But they're going around looking at these minor details in their day-to-day life and, and doing them in such a way as to give the impression that everything is good and fine between them and God, that they're very holy and righteous men, while they have these gaping holes in their life, right? And that's not what we should do. So the moral law is more weighty than the ritual law. The moral must have more weight than the ritual law. 1 Samuel 15, to see that this is indeed taught in the Bible, because there are some who would say that the Bible doesn't make distinctions in terms of the law. Um, But it actually does make distinctions in terms of the law. It does so both common sense-wise, right? Anyone who's reading objectively with a logical mind can see that in like the Old Testament, certain laws like the garment that you wear or the food that you eat, that is not as important as murdering someone, right? It's, it's not on the same level, right? Anyone can see this. And even in terms of murder, having hatred in your heart, yes, that is a sin and we need to repent of it, but that is not as grave of an offense as actually going out and killing someone, right? There, even in the court of law, even in society, we recognize that there are aggravations of sin or of crimes, Right, manslaughter is one, and first-degree murder is another, right? That there are intentions and things that are going on that will make a sin of a more grave manner. Not that all sin isn't worthy of death. Certainly all of it is worthy of death, but some has a greater guilt associated with it, and it will lead to even a greater condemnation, a greater condemnation on the offender. 1 Samuel 15, 22-23. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Now, does God in the Old Testament command burnt offerings and sacrifices? Yes, Yes, these are in the law. But does God delight in them when the person who is performing the sacrifice is not obeying the voice of the Lord? No. No. Right, That's the issue that's going on here. The issue is not offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. Done in the right way, then that's good and pleasing in the sight of God. But if you are disobeying God while you do that... Or in your life in many other ways, and then thinking that just doing these rituals and offering this sacrifice is gonna smooth everything over with God, then you have a corrupt understanding of those things. Right? These moral obligations are of a more weighty, they are more foundational than these rituals, these outward things that you are performing that have their place in the household of faith and in our practice, but they must be done in the proper way. From faith and love of god and love of neighbor those things cannot be lacking within our life and then think that performing some ritual is going to be pleasing in the sight of god also mark 12 mark 12:33 12, mark 12:32 and 33 the scribe said to him, "Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Right. Loving God and loving neighbor are much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, again, does that mean, okay, well we just need to love God and love neighbor at this time? and then we don't have to do burnt offerings and sacrifices. Nope. No, that's not the way it was in the Old t- Covenant. Love God and love neighbor, and then offer your burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's the proper order. But if love of God and neighbor are lacking, then what good is burnt offerings and sacrifices? It does absolutely no good at all. Also, we know from John nineteen eleven when Jesus is speaking of Judas and the Jews to Pilate, that the one who delivered me up to you has the greater sin, the greater sin. So in that way, their sin was even greater than Pilate's sin because they were sinning against more revelation, right? More revelation, and they had a greater guilt upon them than even Pilate. So what people are prone to do is they are prone to neglect the weightier provisions of the law, which are the two great commandments to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, And then those two defined by the Ten Commandments, right? The the Ten Commandments, the first four teaching us how to love God, and the final six teaching us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. So people are prone to neglect these things, these weightier provisions of the law, yet claim to be righteous because they have a very rigid, scrupulous following of lighter provisions of the law. The lighter provisions, like here in this case, is tithing, mint, dill, and cumin. Or ritual law, right? I've, well, I was baptized. I took the Lord's Supper. I, I did these kinds of things. And therefore, because I'm doing this, I'm right before God, while at the same time, I'm neglecting the two great commandments of God. That's what people do. Either lighter provisions that are truly in the law, like tithing, or traditions of men, things that they have made themselves that they are very meticulous in doing, but have no place within our faith or in our practice of righteousness. Here, what are they neglecting? He says that they are neglecting, first, justice. Justice. <coughs> justice between men, which is the manifesting and working out of righteousness <coughs> in the world, right? Righteousness in us and righteousness in the world in which we see and in which we live. Well, they are neglecting justice they are not giving justice to people but rather they are showing partiality and we've already read that they are devouring widows houses that is itself an injustice right and they're fine with people who do that they give approval to people who do that and they do not rebuke them they do not preach in, against their sin and what they are doing because if they are on the side of the rich then what will the rich do for them they'll give them a little bit of money, right? This is the way, it always comes back to money, right? People love money. So they neglect justice. They show partiality to the rich while devouring the widow's houses. Also, mercy. They neglect mercy, acts of compassion to those who are in distress. That's what we read earlier from James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows In their distress. Isn't that to show mercy to people? And we are to be merciful in the way that we live. Compassionate, kind, gracious, merciful to our fellow man. Even to our enemies, we are to behave in this way. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who showed mercy, who showed love to his neighbor? Was it the priest and the Levite? Was it the religious people who neglected this man who left him there half dead to die on the side of the road? They had no mercy in them. Seeing a fellow man, a fellow image bearer of God laying there half dead on the side of the road and to not be moved with compassion to say, I need to help this man, to not even think and enter into your mind. What would I want to be done to me if I was in that position? If I was lying half dead on the side of the road, would I want someone to stop and help me or just to walk by the other way and pay no attention to me? Well, I would want someone to help me, so shouldn't we love our neighbor as ourselves? Isn't that the standard that's set in the Bible? And that's the reason why we should be merciful to people. But they don't do that. They didn't do it at all. They show no mercy. Then faithfulness. Faithfulness. They have no faithfulness to God. And in Luke eleven forty-two, 42, which is his parallel account of this, Instead of mercy and faithfulness, he says love of God, love of God, justice and love of God. They have no love for God, no love for God, no love for man, no love for righteousness. They are completely bereft of these qualities, virtues, attributes. Now, are those essential to the Christian life? Can you be a Christian and have no love of God? can you be a Christian and have no love for your fellow man no love for righteousness and justice to be executed and brought out into the world no you cannot be a child of God and be lacking in these qualities and in these attributes these virtues but then they because they tithe on mint, and cumin they say no, no no we're children of God we're children of Abraham we're very faithful to God look we are so meticulous in our tithing that even when a sprig of mint or dill or cumin grows up in the crack of our house we are so meticulous that when we pick it we tithe off of that little sprig of dill this is how faithful we are in our tithing to god and this is what people they love to do these kinds of things and then they want to talk about it yeah to everyone and tell everyone uh, do do you tithe on your uh, mint dill and cumin Because I do, you know, I do this. When I do it, this is how meticulous I am. And they're doing that not to encourage people in righteousness. They're doing it to inflate themselves, right? To build themselves up, to make others feel bad and to make themselves feel good. But what do they never want to talk about? Justice, mercy, faithfulness, love of God. Many times these kinds of people, they don't want to talk about Christ. They don't want to talk about the cross. They don't want to talk about our own sin and what God has done for us, the magnitude of His forgiveness, they rarely talk about these things. But they always want to talk about these minute details of the law. This is what they do. And they're preoccupied with it. And when that happens, it's not good. It's not good for there to be this focus on these less weighty provisions of the law. Our focus should be on the weightier, right? If they're weightier, then that should be getting the lion's share of our time and attention. Now again, Jesus says not that these things should be neglected. There is a place for them, but in the proper order. In the proper order and in the proper place. Jeremiah 22 verses 1 to 5. Jeremiah 22 verses 1 to 5. It says there. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word. And say, "Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants, and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver those, deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. And do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place." "...for if you men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself, and his servants and his people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation." Here, again, is it not the same thing in Jeremiah's day? The same problem. They are neglecting justice, righteousness, and mercy. They're not delivering the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. They're shedding innocent blood. And there they're doing it there in the house of the king of Judah. right there in Jerusalem, is where these things are happening, and that place will be a desolation because of this neglect. Also, Micah, chapter six. Micah six, six to eight. Micah 6 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. With your God. Here again, it's the same issue. The same issue. Now when he's saying, what should I come before the Lord with? He doesn't mean, how am I going to earn God's favor right. Right, by my acts? He doesn't mean that at all. He means that in terms of our obedience to God, in terms of our daily living before the Lord, burnt offerings, these are not the things that are pleasing in the sight of God. When we take the name of the Lord and we, when we profess to be followers of Christ, when we um, believe in Him and, and turn from our sin and we have sworn allegiance to Christ, then what does God require of us in our daily living? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Right. That's the way that we should live. We should not neglect these things and then think that if I bring a burnt offering with yearling calves, then God's going to, He'll be pleased with me if I do that. Or if I have 1,000 rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, right? If I have a preponderance of all of these offerings, this great amount, while I'm neglecting justice, kindness, and walking humbly with God, that's going to earn me God's favor. Even if you bring your own firstborn child for your rebelliousness, that's not going to cut it. Nope. No, we need to live a godly life, not for our salvation, but because of our salvation, right? Because of what God has done for us. But people will neglect these things and convince themselves that they are children of God, that God is on their side, that God is pleased with them, because they are being meticulous in these finer areas, these finer outward areas where they can Show everyone all the things that they do and puff themselves up with pride in this way. He says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Again, the house must be in the proper order. It must be built in the proper way. The foundation must be laid and then everything must be laid on top of that. And so it is in the way that we order our life before God. The weightier things must be first, and then those less weighty things must be built on top of that, right? They must come as a reflection or as a manifestation of what has already been laid before, right? Faith toward God, then as a result of our faith in Christ, then we want to love God and we want to love our neighbor. And then a way that we love God, yes, is by giving our gifts and offerings to God, by tithing, And we should be very faithful to do those things in the proper way. But if we're neglecting everything that comes before and then just focusing on this one, then everything is backwards. And it does not do us any good at all. The weightier comes first and then gives rise to the rest. Then tithing is pleasing to God or the sacrifice or whatever else uh, it is. Verse 24, he says, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, right? These are two unclean animals, a camel and a gnat, okay? But of the two unclean animals, which of the two do you not want to ingest, right? You don't want to swallow. You don't want to swallow a gnat or a camel, but if you're going to swallow one or the other, you'd rather take the gnat than the camel. They are straining out gnats, and they're swallowing camels whole, right? They have this massive camel there in their drink, And yet they're looking at these gnats and picking them out while at the same time drinking down these camels. Do you see how foolish this is? How ridiculous it is? This is what they are doing. The gnat is tithing mint, dill, and cumin. They're looking at that while they have the camel of no mercy, no justice, no faithfulness of God. And they think because they have removed the gnat, that now they can drink it down and everything is going to be good and fine. But it isn't the case at all. You have ingested a camel, right? And that's not going to be good for you, right? It's not going to be good at all. You are unclean. So again, much care and concern about small little matters preoccupied with these things while wholesale neglect and disregard for the greater things. And this is what hypocrites do. They make a great commotion about being keenly conscientious and scrupulous about small trifling things while committing gross violations of justice, mercy, love, and faithfulness. And it's not good. It's not good. We can't be like that. So we must be on guard against swallowing these kinds of unclean animals, right? Not that the animal itself is what is being swallowed. He's not talking about... Camels or coyotes or skunks or possums, or any other animal out there that would make you unclean. He's talking about sin, sin, Right. right? Focusing on the minutiae while neglecting the weightier provisions of the law. Straining out the gnat, swallowing the camel whole.